This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. We walk into this unit and Joyce and Sasha, I'm going to tell you, to walk into a unit to see 12 cribs all filled with babies was extremely heartbreaking. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Adopting Hope, a podcast about adoptive, foster, and spiritual mothering. I'm Joyce Koo Dowerpole. And I'm Sasha Parker. We're both moms, and we're both adoptive moms. And on each episode of our show, you'll hear from a mom and sometimes a dad about their journey in adoption and foster care. Our hope is that this podcast provides hope and encouragement as you hear these stories. Whether you're an adoptive, foster, or spiritual mother yourself, an adoptee, or someone who just wants to encourage and love adoptive and foster parents. These stories are all windows into the gospel, the story of a God who adopts us and loves us with a redeeming love, and whose love empowers and compels us to extend that love through the unique joys and challenges that come from adoption and foster care. Thanks for tuning in. We pray this encourages you as you listen. And even when our hearts are breaking, even when our souls are shaking, oh, oh, we've got this. Oh, 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 oh. On today's show, our guest is Fran Atchison. You're in for a special treat because Fran has a faith that is on fire. She speaks with so much passion, conviction, and authority. When Sasha and I sat down to interview her, it was almost hard to ask her questions because she is such a gifted storyteller and you just want to sit, listen, and even take notes. A scripture that comes to mind when I think of Fran is Jeremiah 17, 7 to 8. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when He comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Fran really epitomizes what it means to have your confidence in God and to never fail to bear fruit. I first met Fran and her husband, Reverend Sam Atchison, about 20 years ago, and they quickly became very dear to my husband and me. They took us under their wings, mentored us, and even prayed for us as a newly married couple. Even after all these years and multiple moves, we've kept in touch. They're such wise and special people, and you'll understand why after you hear Fran on this podcast. Fran is African-American. She's a retired administrator from Newark Public Schools in New Jersey, and her husband, Reverend Sam, is an ordained minister and was a prison chaplain at a maximum security prison in Trenton. They have two adult biological girls, and when they decided to adopt, they specifically wanted to adopt an African-American boy from Newark, where Fran worked. Well, they ended up adopting twin baby boys from Newark who are now 17 years old. I'll let Fran tell you how it happened. Welcome, Fran. So glad to have you on the podcast today. Yes. Hello, Joyce. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Tell us about your adoption journey. Like, how did you decide? How did you decide to adopt? Okay. Well, hi, Joyce and Sasha. Our adoption journey really began with Sam and I separately as Christians 
the Lord kind of laying on our hearts said, oh yeah, you know, one day I'd like to adopt. It was just something we offered to the Lord one day in our courtship. So that was before even you got married. Even before we got married, you know, and it's sort of the reminder that, um, you know, God gives you the desires of your heart when you seek him. But the thing that you offer back to him are the things that he's already put in your heart, right? So I met Sam when we got married. He was 28 and I was 32. I actually married a younger man. And I refer to Fran's husband as Reverend Sam. He's in ministry and he worked for like decades in a maximum security prison as the chaplain, New Jersey State Prison. That was not an easy job. Yeah, to say the least. And so I think that also plays a part in your adoption story. Yeah. So, you know, when I got married, I was 32 and we had our first biological baby at age 36 and the second at age 38. So I was already an older mother, working woman. Part of where we were living and what we were doing and how we were serving the Lord through our work, I worked as a major uh, Newark Public Schools, the largest school district in New Jersey. I was an, an administrator. Sam was supervising chaplain in a maximum security prison. So we were looking at this preschool, or actually birth to prison pipeline for black and brown boys and men, right? Because the majority, the overwhelming majority of Sam's congregation at the prison were black and brown. And so I ended up as first lady of a prison congregation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, there is nothing like having a total room yeah. full of men think that you're beautiful and smart and all of that. I've never experienced anything like it. And so I'm not saying that all women should go to uh, prison church services, but I'm going to tell you, ladies, there's nothing like it. I actually went there with Tim because my husband, Tim, was mentored by Reverend Sam and did an internship on the inside of the prison. And that was one of the most amazing experiences. It's going to church on the inside. So, you know, all of these ruminations are happening. Our our little girls were like 10 and 8, and we were approaching this period where, you know, something happened. They were going to a prep school, and they gave us a tuition increase we couldn't afford. And, and so we sought the Lord, and we we're like, well, Lord, you know, we know it's not your desire for us that all of our discretionary income goes just to a private prep school. What are we going to do? And what about all the other things in our life that we're looking at? What about adoption? Like, remember that? Like, do you remember that thing? So at this point, how involved are your girls? Are you bringing them to the church services? Children are not allowed. Okay. They're not allowed. Inside a maximum okay. prison. Okay. But they knew daddy's stories and they knew about daddy's job. So our daughters had these parents who worked in extremely stressful jobs and situations. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, they were involved in our lives because that was our life. When I had to work late in Newark, Sam was the parent who was there. And so our family we we're pretty tight, you know, and, and so the girls were patient with us as working parents. And so when this prep school thing happened and we had to look at these resources, we went to the girls and we said, you know, we've been praying mm-hmm. about it. 
The school is given this huge tuition increase. And mom and dad, we're feeling that God doesn't want us to put all our resources here. And so we're looking at homeschooling and they were ecstatic at that. And we said, we're also looking at adopting. And they'd heard us tell this story before about, oh, one day we would adopt, Um, but nothing ever came of it. What grades were they going to be going into at that point? Yeah, they were going to be going into grades seven and five. And the four of us, the girls now as adults and, and Sam and I, you know, we've talked about these things and gone back and looked at it. So there was excitement around homeschooling because they were exhausted kids being minority children in a predominantly white school. They were a little bit emotionally exhausted. And so they saw homeschooling as a respite. And then Mm. a little bit later, you know, they grieved the loss of going from school to homeschool. So that was yet another process. And it's now um, I'm going to like pause real quick with it just to ask. So this was a family decision, it sounds like, to have like it was they were on board fully with, you know, getting pulled out of this private school and also adopting. This was like, they were kind of, in, in a way, a, 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 it was, a, a, it was the, those decisions went together and it's going to affect them in a major way. And so they were on board. Yes, it, it was a major thing. So we, we entered the 2002-2000 year as homeschool parents. And as I said, I'd worked in education, not trained as an educator, but I I was a grants administrator. So Fran, did you have to quit your job so you could be home full-time? No, no. Let me me tell you, there's a provision that God does, right? So (laughs) when you pursue your job with excellence, I was Newark Public Schools grants administrator. I actually was the only part-time administrator in the history of Newark Public Schools, I advocated with my then superintendent that I work part-time. And so we entered into this uh, agreement. It was just this whole thing. But for a total of 36 months, I was a part-time administrator. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to homeschool the girls Mm -hmm. and um, then pursue adoption. And so in the adoption process. Well, real quick, can we just, I just want to ask you one more question about this whole homeschool thing. So when you guys made this decision, were people supportive, your family, your community, or were they kind of like, you guys are crazy? What was the response of your immediate family and community? You all are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I you're assuming like, that. and I was thinking, you know, I was part of that community. I was like, okay, you guys are older. Not that you're, you're old, Fran, <laughs> but you're older parents and you're like in these stressful jobs and like, you're going to homeschool and, you know, um, but, and, but the thing that was so beautiful to mm-hmm. me is that this was, it felt like it was part of your calling. It related to Reverend Sam's. Um, work. He had been seeing, as you had mentioned, mm-hmm. like this birth to prison pipeline. Right. And it was like, you're doing something at the preventative end of it, at the birth end of it, rather than he's working all, like in the prison at the, like where, where it's almost like you, you, the trajectory of their life has, has already at a certain point. And so I feel like that was part of your longing to adopt 
um, African American, exactly. and you're African American, yeah. um, but adopt African American boys um, from Newark. Exactly, Joyce. So all of it, you know, as committed Christians, as I said at the outset, when you offer back to God the desire of your heart, when something is birthed in you, you're giving back to Him what He's already put in you. And so, because you're not going to be praying at cross purposes against what God's plan is for you. And this is a very delicate thing for Christians to understand, right? A lot of times when we feel like our prayers aren't answered, we feel, you know, you're feeling as the young people say some kind of way about, well, God, you didn't answer this prayer. Well, the thing that you're praying may not necessarily be the thing that God wants you to be praying. So he's not going to answer it. And that could be a good thing. And in our stubbornness and sinful nature, a lot of times we'll just go ahead and go through with his no and then, you know, cry about it later when something doesn't quite work out. When did the boys come home? Like, when did you when did you get them in this time period? What year was it? I'm getting getting there. Okay. We're in 2002-2003 school year. And in October of 2002, we start the process of becoming foster parents. So in New Jersey at that time, they had a program called Foster Adopt, where you could go from fostering a child to adopting a child. So the Lord had put in our, um, in our path a woman, an older saint of God, Louise Hopkins, who's at home with the Lord, who Mm. was a foster grandmother Mm. who would take infants and foster them until their adoptive home was made available. Mm. And so when Louise Hopkins heard from other people that we were interested in adopting, she told us about this program And a ministry of a church that was our first Baptist of Lincoln Gardens in New Jersey, that program worked specifically to recruit and train and help retain Mm African-American families with adoption. So the, Mm -hmm. the landscape of adoption in America is that Black boys are the least favorite to be adopted. And so that's just part of the political and social Mm. and socioeconomic and Mm. systemic racist Mm. policies in America so that a black boy, looking at all of the demographics and all of the data, they were the least likely Mm. to be adopted. Black children in general Mm and then black boys. Mm -hmm. And so here was Sam working in a maximum security prison with the majority black and brown boys. Here I'm working with Newark Public Schools and looking at the data around the undereducation of black and brown children and the confluence of those things, right? That the Lord had Fran and Sam Atchison working in these institutions where we saw what the most Mm -hmm. negative outcomes were And his putting in our pathway this wonderful saint of God, Elizabeth Louise Hopkins, who knew of a program. We'd never heard of this program. And so the name of the ministry of this church, the ministry was called Harvest of Hope. 
And so they recruited and retained. And so we started that process in October of 2002. And so we're like, okay, let's get involved. And we did our training to be uh, foster parents. The girls were part of that process. When we were being trained as foster parents, you know, we had Saturdays where we went for training and the girls were there in the room with us and they had little needlepoint baby bibs that they were doing because they would tell people, oh, we're working on our baby bibs because we're going to get a baby brother. And so they were part of the process. And You know, they were interviewed by the caseworker. They had to complete their their essays. Jael at that time wrote hers out. Danielle preferred to do hers graphically. So she showed pictures of what she thought her new family would look like. And so we went through and became foster parents first. We finally got approved. How long did that process take? Yeah, it took a while. It took until our final approval of our home as a foster home happened in May. Mm -hmm. And in fact, along the way, we, you know, we pass all the criminal background checks, of course, Mm -hmm. because Sam worked in criminal justice Mm -hmm. and I was in education. So we knew we weren't going to have any problems with that. We did all of our training, the mental health assessments, all of those things. Our home was certified. You know, you come in and a little footnote here. I told the girls, I said, you know, we're not going to be able to get a baby if the house is not spotless. So <laughs> That's a great idea to tell your kids that. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you, my house was never as clean <laughs> oh as my it ever goodness. was. They were excited to have mm, a baby. They were the so clean excited. house. We got through the inspections, everything. We got held up because of homeschooling, believe it or not. Mm. You know, we won that battle and we got approved. And it wasn't a legal battle, but it just, it was a hurdle. And some people think that, okay, if I've been called by God to do something, then it must be, like, the the road must be smooth. And if I experience... The road must be smooth. It must be easy. And so I didn't want to belabor a point, but it wasn't like, oh, we made this decision, Mm -hmm. and then we applied to be foster parents. Oh, and then it happened. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen that Mm -hmm. way. And so along the way... We had these hurdles, but we stuck there. We stuck there. And so now we get to the end of May. We get our final certificate, our home. We are approved as an official foster care family by the state of New Jersey. So now we're all happy. And now we start waiting for the baby to come. So we had prepared for one boy. So on a Tuesday in June of 2003, we've done the training, we're approved. I get a call and I get a call from this retention specialist through Harvest of Hope, Pamela Davis. And she calls and she says, Miss Atchison. And, you know, I'm like, what (laughs) now? Because, you know, we've had these hurdles. And she said, well, we have a situation. Twin boys were born and they want to know if you will accept the placement. And and I said, okay, well, let me call my husband and I'll get back to you. So I hang up and the girls are like, what? And I tell them, you know, there's a situation, they're (laughs) twins. These girls fall (laughs) to their knees and in bended knee, hands clasped, they're just praying. And I said, they said, did you say yes? I said, I got to call daddy. 
So they're on their knees and they're praying. Now, the thing about New Jersey State Prison, it's huge. Mm. And, you know, my husband is chaplain. He's never in his office. Never. Mm. I call switchboard and I get patched through. Sam answers the phone. Never happens. Wow. And so I, I call. I said, babe, Harvest of Hope called. And he said, what now? You know, we were just we're going through this. What now phase? I said, there's a situation. We were praying in our hearts for an infant. These were his questions. These were the things we prayed about. Are they infants? Yes, they're under age one. Were they born in Newark? Because we wanted a Newark baby, just because I worked in Newark public schools. And the answer was yes. And were they foster adopt eligible? In other words, we weren't just going to be a foster family. We were going to be eligible to adopt them when they became eligible. And the answer was yes. So, oh, and also were they black? Were they from Newark? He stopped, he paused, Mm. prayed quickly. He said, tell her yes. So I said... I, I said, I'm trying not to cry. I said, uh, yes. Oh, and he said, so yes. Oh, I said, goodness. okay, baby, I love you. And I hung up and I said, girls, daddy said, yes. Mm. These two girls joined hands and jumping up and down, they started shouting, we each get a baby. We each get a baby. Which now when I think about it, I was like, yeah, that was probably the safest thing. The wine, you know, that, you know? <laughs> And so I called her back. That call came on a Tuesday. And so Sam and I were working administrators. They're like, well, when can you come up and see the babies? And they're already born. They were 46 days old. And they were waiting in a hospital bed waiting for us. Oh, you got to get there as quick as you can. (laughs) Wow. So when they were born, did they have they were in the hospital. That's kind of a long period of time to be in the hospital, 46 days. Unfortunately, their birth mom had lost her rights to children. And so there's this thing that if the state comes in and terminates parental rights to your children, even if you get pregnant, you don't get to keep your children because the Mm. state has already deemed you not able to care for children. Well, and I just thought that they would be placed in a a home. Yeah, a foster home. You know, like right away. But maybe there wasn't any available. No, no. The underplacement of black children in America is a huge problem. Which is why the Lord laid on the hearts of the people at First Baptist of Lincoln Gardens and the minister there, Reverend Dr. Buster Soares, to start a ministry to recruit, retrain, and retain mm-hmm. African American so important parents to adopt. So the whole the whole notion that. Uh, you know, every baby mm. born is a desirable baby mm. is false. Because if you have a country in which every life doesn't matter in the same way, you end up with a situation that a cute little baby 
is waiting to be placed. And they were both healthy. Like, they were healthy baby boys. They were healthy baby. Their mom did not do drugs. She didn't, there were no records of her having a lot of prenatal care, but they were healthy as twins. They were over six pounds wow. each. And she's just a small little petite thing, but she had lost custody of previous children that she had given birth to. And Mm -hmm. so in New Jersey at that time, there was a border, B-O-A-R-D-E-R, as in to board a border baby unit. It was a unit at University Mm -hmm. Hospital in Newark where there were 12 cribs. And in that crib, Babies were placed who were awaiting a foster placement. And there were 12 cribs and they were always filled. Wow. And so they could be filled by babies who may have um, been born to a mom who was addicted. And Mm -hmm. so the babies would go through their um, detox program and there was a whole different you know, hospital procedure and a nursery for that. And once the babies were detoxed, they would go to the border baby unit. Or like Mm -hmm. our boys, they weren't born with any addiction or anything. They just Mm -hmm. needed a home. Now, is this something that's still, you know, in 2020, is this that border baby unit still? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think different things have happened. Okay. But for our boys in particular, when Ms. Davis told us that they were called and that there was a situation, the situation was if we hadn't accepted the placement of twins, they were actually going to be separated because the probability of their Mm. being Um, placed as singletons was greater than their being placed as twins. Mm. So that was a real situation. Mm, Um, And so, so for us, you know, when Sam said, yes, we will take them. So we got a call on a Tuesday. They had to work out. They start the things in motion. And uh, we actually saw them on a Thursday, Sam and I. Again, girls were not allowed. 18-year-old, you had to be a legal adult. Mm -hmm. And so he took the train up. I was already working in Newark. We went over in the afternoon. I'm going to try not to cry again. And so we sign in. They were prepared. They had our name and everything from uh, Children's Services. And we walked in and it's a, it's a hospital and it's a nursery. So everything is sterile. Mm -hmm. Right. And we had to, you know, put on what we now know today is PPEs. We had a, you know, a mask, a glove, a hat, booties, gowns, all of those things that go into this very sterile unit. And we walk into this unit and Joyce and Sasha, I'm going to tell you to walk into a unit to see 12 Mm -hmm. cribs all filled with babies was extremely heartbreaking. But our boys were in crib, twin A was in crib three, and twin B was in crib six. And um, so I went to the first one, and I just looked, because my first first thought was, what the heck was I thinking? This is a real baby. What did you right, think was right. going to happen, Fran? <laughs> so at this time, the girls were 13, 11. I'm like, I, I have totally lost my mind. 
I look up, mm. Sam is over at crib six and he picks up that baby. Tears are coming down his face. His mask is getting soaked with his tears. And all he's saying is, I'm ready to take my sons home today. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> so wow. in that moment, right, you know, I, I was able to like pull myself together. I'm like, okay, Lord. Mm. So we were allowed to, you know, hold them and they had rocking chairs there. Mm. We each got, but there was no cross transference, right? So he got to hold the baby he was holding. I got to hold the baby I was holding. We sat there, we prayed, we rocked, we prayed. Then I started crying and then we finished with that. And then we put that boy down. We had to go back out, re-sterilize, take off that gown, do all of that stuff, and then come back in and switch babies. Mm. Mm. And so then we each got to hold them. And did you at this point, did you have names picked out or were you kind of waiting? Hold up, hold up. So okay. okay. They are wards of the state and yeah. they had birth names. Their mother mm. had given them a name. They had a first mm-hmm. name and a last name. They were wards mm. of the state. And so, so that was Thursday. The hospital needed 24 hours to discharge them because they you know, had to be officially discharged from the hospital. And the social worker at the hospital who managed the cases had to complete all the paperwork. So we got a call on a Tuesday, saw them on a Thursday. We couldn't take any pictures or anything because you cannot take pictures of who children are who state. are not yeah. So, you know, we can only describe who they were, call on a Tuesday, saw them on a Thursday, brought them home on Friday. Wow. This happened so quickly. Like the same week. week. Yeah. Same That is so crazy. We go from one little cute nursery to, oh (laughs) my gosh. And mm. um, so Harvest of Hope, they, they wow. you know, we said we we're going to take the placement. And so they brought us a second crib. Um, but we we just had this real crazy night. We went shopping, right? Because we hadn't bought anything because we didn't know what size baby we we're going to get and an age or anything. We went shopping. <laughs> well, you can imagine mm. how crazy it was. Oh. And we each had a cart. Sam, Jael, Danielle, and I, and I had my list, right? And so a girl would be over in an aisle, mm. mom, I found the onesies. I was like, what size is it? I was like, it's oh. this and this. I said, okay, <laughs> get four packs. And she fill her heart. And we're going around. <laughs> and so we just, we made a commotion in the store. And so people were like, what's going on? They were like, because they were like, is it a big sale? Mm. What is going on? And the girls were like, oh, our baby brothers. Are coming <laughs> they couldn't wait to tell our everyone. Baby brothers. And people were like, oh, congratulations. Mm. And people were clapping because we were <laughs> so excited. It was totally, mm. totally crazy. So we, we got to um, go back and pick them up. And the girls were with us. And then, you know, so then the paperwork. So this is their story that all of the beginning pictures show Jael and Danielle holding a boy. Because while Sam and I were upstairs with the social worker filling out all the legal paperwork, the hospital workers took the boys. And, you know, when babies are born, right, they have their bracelets 
and bracelets has, has to match the name of the mother, et cetera. Well, when you're a ward of the state, right, only the personnel would have that matching bracelet. So mm-hmm. we couldn't even bring them out downstairs from that unit. It had to be the hospital staff. Mm-hmm. But they agreed to, as we were near the end of finishing, filling out two hours worth of paperwork, the girls were in the lobby waiting. And I said, you know, can you go ahead and place the boys in their arms? I said, you'll be able to see who they are because they're the anxiously (laughs) waiting girls. And Mm -hmm. that's what they did. So they went down and they placed the boys, one in each arm, while Sam and I finished the paperwork. And so when we came down to the lobby, they had already, they'd been nuzzling and kissing on them. And they already had their backstories. I'm like, wait a minute. You just have to only been holding a baby for an hour. And um, the boy who we called Kevin had been placed in Danielle's arm. And the boy who we called Jonathan had been placed in Jael's arm. And this was the boy's first time off of that unit in 49 days. Wow. They had never been outside in their lives. Mm. And... But they were the happiest girls on the planet on that Mm. day. Mm. And so Sam and I came. It was Friday. It was Mm -hmm. a hot Friday in June. And um, we had a lot of traffic problems on the way uh, because it was a Friday in June. Everybody's going to New Jersey Shore. But um, that was the beginning. And so their Mm. first day with us was at the age Mm. of 49 days old. And so uh, that was how we got Kevin and John. Wow. Both of us are like kind of speechless at this time. Like that's an amazing story. And um, there's so much that has happened, you know, from that day you brought them home and things you probably couldn't imagine from the standpoint of having these infants and now they're towering. I can't even say that (laughs) word. They are huge, you know, 17-year-old teenage boys. And what's remarkable to me is that they they even look like your family. Like I know. you know, like just just down to every detail. I'm like, these are your boys. These um, are these boys. are your boys. Yep, um, they are. They are. Yeah. So what are I mean, what are some things that you have learned along the way? And one I want to touch on, like raising black boys in America is not easy. And that's really an understatement. And so I feel like you you have your eyes wide open going in. But a lot of these adoptive parents who might be white, who are adopting black and brown kids, you know, they are walking into stuff that they're not necessarily know what they're walking into. And so I'm just wondering, as an adoptive mom of African-American boys, like, what have you learned along the way? And yeah, what advice would you pass on? Well, you know, being a parent is just hard for everybody, right? You're, there are things yes. you just have to, and especially being Christian parents, where you're always in prayer and you're trying to teach the things of the Lord. And so all of that is just life and parenting. It's every parent's challenge. Being the parent of a black kid adds to that, right? So 
you know, we would go to a park and literally there was a park in Princeton, Joyce, you may recall, was called Marquand Park. As toddlers, our first encounter, we opened the car door in the parking lot and then, you know, put them on the path to the playground. And we noticed that the white parents scooped mm -hmm. up their kids. And we're like, for real? You know, and Sam and I looked at each other, we're like, wow, it starts this early? It starts this early? Wow. And so, you know, that was our first response. The second response was, oh, okay, the boys just have everything to themselves and they don't have to wait. But the fact that our little boys who were in the car, in a car seat, you know, kids just get, they're ready to be let loose. And when they do, they get out and they run and they play. The fact that our little black boys got out running and the white parents scooped up their kids was our first encounter. And these are still wow. our same little cute kids. Yeah, it's like, at what point do they, like, they're not threatening. They're like one or two years old, you know? Like, mm. it's just, it's mind boggling that it started so, so young. And probably a really kind of awakening for you and Reverend Sam at that point to be like, oh, we're gonna have to like, start well, yeah. encountering and this I don't, I don't earlier we, than you, you were probably I don't think prepared we to. thought about it actively <laughs> with our daughters in the same way when they were young, right? Like, so as, as African-Americans, we know that there's, you know, they're gonna be people who just are gonna think some kind of way. They're gonna be people who are not gonna believe that you are their education, intellectual, equal, nothing. They will not right. ascribe that to you just because of the color of your skin. So we knew that we were going to have those conversations with the girls mm. as they continued to grow, but mm. we we didn't live that with them. Even though they were in the minority at their mm. prep school, we're just like, oh, this is a prep school and mm. this is who you are and you're the Atchison's and of course you are, you know, you're, you're as brilliant as you are because we're your parents and this is your life and these are your grandparents. But for the boys, that was a real rude awakening. So, mm. so we watched them grow and then we started to respond to things differently. For example, um, out in one of the town, the townships, Hamilton Township, there was a park, Veterans Park. And yeah, after Sunday, you know, I was still working hmm. during the week. And so Sunday afternoon after church, you go to the park, the kids get to play. Mm -hmm. And this one day I was on the mommy bench and I looked up and I saw the boys. They were each flanked by two white little boys and their hands were behind their back. And I looked up and I was like, heck no, what is this? And so they were playing cops and robbers. But the visual of that, a black boy with a white boy on either side mm. and the white boys were the cops and they were the robbers. And wow. so I, I got up and I was like, what, what, what are you playing? What is this? And they said, Oh mom, we're playing cops and robbers mm. and we're, we're the robbers. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, you can't play that game. You, you, you can't play that game. And so I made right. an instant rule. Right. Atchison's are not allowed to play cops mm. and robbers. Mm. And it's such an innocent thing. You know, they don't, they're mm. not aware, but knowing no, but right. it's feeding into right. this but, systemic... You know, I mean, mm. in fairness to kids playing, you know, mm. it could have been their turn to be yes. the robber. Could have been. 
I don't know. I right. don't know what led right. to that. I was on but. the mommy bench <laughs> pretending to read and falling asleep, you know, from my hard work. But the whole visual of that was so abhorrent to me. I had I had to shut it down. And so I instant rule Atchison's are not allowed to play cops and robbers unless they can only always be the cops. And so um, right, right. and so I said, you know, you could play Army Army, you could play Space Invaders, mm. you can't play cops and robbers. So the next time we went to the park, you know, they get out of the car and they're running, mm. we can play, but we can't be, we yeah. we can't play cops and robbers unless we can only yeah. be the cops. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. And so, again, I don't know if the other moms on the mom bench felt anything about that, but I knew that for me, it fed into a picture I did not want to see. That's right. Um, and so, you know, that happened. And so along the way, there were challenges. Things that you just don't think about as you a, don't. a non-Black par- you know, parent, you just don't, exactly. you're not aware of that. And how do you counter that as you're trying to instill the view of themselves from Michael and Kevin uh, that you are growing into men of God, of equal worth and dignity, and and God has given you all these gifts and plan for your life? How do you instill that when these other messages, you know, that they're maybe they're even not even conscious of those messages when they're really little, but like as they're growing up? So one of the things that we just taught was, and we continue to teach about the nature of sin. And that racism and ethnic genocide is not just a black-white issue, that it is, in fact, a world sin issue, so that you could be on the continent of Africa and have black people who are killing black people because they are, you know, of a different ethnic group. And you could be in Europe and be in Slavic countries and have white-skinned Muslims kill white-skinned Christians. I mean, so it's a heart issue. In America, it is personified most adroitly with black and white and then white and indigenous peoples, right? The the genocide of Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So we first teach as Christian parents, it's a heart issue and it's a sin issue. And so that God calls us to always examine our heart. After the heart issue, we just say, well, that person did that because they're crazy. That person did that because they're in need of Jesus. We as Sam and Fran, you know, our friends are our friends. And so we know people who are white, who are Asian, who are uh, European, who are Caribbean, who are, we just know people and we love people. And when people accept us for who we are, you know, we don't have a problem with that. We're just looking at the content of their character. And so, you know, if you're an Anglo parent who has adopted a Black child, you just need to let your child know there are people who are crazy. There are people who need Jesus. You know, you don't impose those things. And so you, in scripture is really clear, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And so, when you have that agreement in Christ Jesus, you know then that that person is your friend, that person is your brother. And so that becomes easy. I think it becomes a challenge when we continue to associate with people who aren't exemplifying Christ 
and we adopt their beliefs as being true. They're not true. They're not, you know, they're not true. Like when Mm -hmm. I was raised back then, I was born in 1953, so we were Negroes with a capital N. And so my parents raised me that I was a, a smart Negro girl. End of discussion. A smart Negro girl. So when I faced institutional racism, that tape, those comments always resonated in my brain. So it was like, it didn't matter what you were doing. I'm a smart Negro girl. And so, you know, you continue those messages of love. You you don't change your messaging. Thinking about what your parents told you, you were able to, when you encounter things that didn't fit in with what your parents had told you about being a smart Negro girl, you're like, that's not true, you know? And I just, I think that that is so crucial for kids who are at that formative age. And you continue that and you love hard like that, right? Because the love of a parent Mm -hmm. in the home is the prophylactic against the damage of the world. The love of a parent in the home is the prophylactic against the damage of the world. And so that's true for, you know, if you have a child who is physically enabled, differently enabled, if you have a child who is, I'm I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to think of just all the different ways in which we're all different. And so it doesn't matter. My love for you, my love for you is not dependent on these external things. And my love for you is not going to change because of what the world says of you. I don't care what the world says of you. This is who you are. And so when parents aren't loving hard and providing that environment, that that arc of safety, Mm -hmm. that place where they are the most safe, you know, even though in the house they're doing crazy things, but they are the most safe here, it creates a prophylactic Mm -hmm right? Against what the world does. Because the world is hard. The world doesn't fit. Like, like what? You know, we're all in need of a savior. I said to Sam yesterday, look, we're all in need of a savior and we're all in need of a good spirit-filled therapist. At the end of the day, we're all damaged because the world does that. And so the job of the parent is just pressing hard and just reminding them, you know, those affirmations, the blessings, the things that we say and we speak over our children, you're supposed to be doing that anyway. You're supposed to be doing that if you're a white parent with a white kid and a black parent with a black kid, you're supposed to be doing that. Just keep loving and keep pressing. And then associate yourself with people of like precious faith so that then you're not exhausted by those things where you can be encouraged. So the other thing I would say to parents who've adopted, you just need to be free when you've done cross-ethnic and cross-cultural adoption. You first have to be free. You first have to be free. And you you know, God's always inviting us to examine ourselves. Well, was I kind of holding on to some things? You know, Lord, I offer it to you. I offer it to you because you're always Mm. pressing into God for him to continue to change you. Yeah, we're just sitting here because we're just like preach it. We're just taking it in. And as adoptive moms, you know, you walk through some really hard things. Anyway, Fran, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Praise God and always available to pray. So now I get to add you, Sasha, to my uh, 
circle of women and moms that I'm praying for and with, because that's what God does. No relationship is wasted yes, thank on Thank you, him. Fran. Not one. Not one. We have learned so much from you today. We've got the power of the resurrection living with If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment and help us spread the word. Share about it on social media or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. Adopting Hope is a production of Christianity Today. It was produced by Mike Cosper, Joyce Dalrymple, and Sasha Parker. It was edited and mixed by Alex Carter. Our theme song, We've Got This Hope, was by Ellie Holcomb. We'll be back next week with another story. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.